0: In reading the, a little bit on the study, the author was saying that actually it's a little bit misnomer talking about happiness. He said the question is more one of well-being, um, and that's part of kind of what the Harvard study focuses on, is how you can have well-being in your mental and physical life, in your work life, in your relationships. And so it's, it's not a success model, I think, in terms of, of optimizing happiness. It's that if you're connected in relationships in some kind of deep, integral way, you'll have the resourcefulness to navigate the full complexity of life.
1: The Reverend John Murr is an Episcopal minister and currently serves as pastor of the Episcopal Church of the Ascension in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. He has previously served as chaplain at NYU and various Manhattan congregations. Alongside his ministry, Reverend Mers is also a co-founder of the North Brooklyn Angels, a local nonprofit organization dedicated to addressing pressing issues such as hunger, poverty, homelessness, and inequitable access to resources through volunteer-driven direct action projects. Join Lewis and I today as we speak with the Reverend Mers about humans' constant search for meaning, and chasing the good life. How does technology play into that? Who knows? It may make life easier, but does it make us happier? The pandemic accelerated development of virtual meeting technology, but most people report feeling lonelier than ever. Our special guest will help us understand if the modern age is making us more connected or more disconnected. Welcome to What I See, the podcast where we uncover the stories of visionaries, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore the big ideas and challenges shaping our future. And now our hosts, Mark O'Donnell and Lewis Schiff. Hey, Dr. Lewis, how's it going?
2: Dr. Lewis, that's damn right it's Dr. Lewis to you,
1: Mark. (laughs) Don't let anybody forget it.
2: I mean, I know we have a prior existing relationship, but for God's sakes, it's Dr. Lewis.
1: Yes, right. It must (laughs) be Dr. Lewis. So just (laughs) tell our listeners, how did you become Dr. Lewis? Because people who know you, they probably aren't going to believe it.
2: Right, right. In fact, it turns out that I am actually not a college graduate, but I am today a PhD holder. Yes, well, there's a secret to my success, Mark. Um, part of that secret is being very good friends with a man named Norm Brodsky, who endowed a college business school called the Norm Brodsky College of Business. Um, you know, he, Norm Brodsky and I worked together a lot for years. He graduated from a college called Ryder University, which is um, out there in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, really in the shadow of Princeton University. Of course, Princeton is globally known and Ryder, nobody knows. But in fact, they're roughly the same age. And uh, what Ryder has been doing for 200 years is inviting first in the family, families to go to individuals to go to college. So it's got this incredible student population. And Norm graduated. He was asked to, uh you know, fund something and name something. And he did that. And then he brought me in to uh, help with this program that we run between Ryder and Oxford University called Moonshots and Moneymakers, which has a really fun story behind how it got started. But the bottom line is I do bring uh, 20, 25 Ryder students. So these are, you know, young people from, you know, hard scrabble backgrounds to a place like Oxford, which is a very uplifting place. And I've been doing it for a few years and the, and the school decided to recognize that contribution to the to the, uh the community
1: well that's awesome congratulations and you deserve it Uh, and the reality is you've been doing the work and research on what makes for great entrepreneurial businesses uh for decades anyway so you deserve it it's good to be recognized for it anyway and and i like seeing the picture of you in your your little cap and uh your little sash or whatever they want. to call I know.
2: It. Well, first of all, let me just share with you. Uh, you may know this already, but those things are like one hundred percent polyester. Nothing is breathing under there. So for three hours, you were like <laughs> cooking. It's like a it's wow. like a sous vide, <laughs> and um, oh. that was brutal. And then and then of course, I, uh, although I didn't know any of this, but everything has meaning. The, the the sash has meaning. The colors have meaning. The this has meaning. That has meaning. So it's yeah, it's you know ritual. You know this. We all know this. Ritual, and, and of course, this is going to feed into our topic today, mm-hmm. but um, part of life is rituals, and that's how we connect with each other. And I kind of make fun of almost everything that institutions do, but every once in a while, I'm brought into an institutional environment like a college graduation, you know, with a thousand young people and another 10,000 of their family members. And you're kind of like blown away by the ritual of a stage of life, like, for example, graduating college.
1: Mm-hmm and it's really interesting in the the context all those students they're looking forward into their future they've been told that graduating college is is part of living a a good life a happy life it makes your your future bigger than your past and it's the beginning of a fantastic journey and of course we know that sometimes it is and sometimes it Mm isn't and Kind of introducing the the topic today, I've been reading a, a book called The Good Life by Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz. And what the, the book is, is a, a culmination of the largest longitudinal study of human happiness. It started at Harvard, I believe in 1938. It was a few hundred Harvard students, and it was from... People from the neighborhood It started out as just men and it it expanded since then to uh, different genders and and race and things. Uh, But it's the longest study of its type. It's generational. So they didn't just study the original participants, but it's their children and their grandchildren, sometimes their great-grandchildren, about what it is to live a good life. How do people become happy? And I'm pretty sure it actually has nothing to do with being a college graduate or not. Not that those people <laughs> wasted their their money <laughs> right. uh, at all, but it really has nothing to do with living a good life, a, a happy life. So what do you think yeah, about? Well,
2: yeah, well, um, it, it would be wonderful. If this thing called college, and this is only a small part of what we want to talk, what you just brought up with the good life. But, you know, there was this idea once that a place called college was where you were opened up to the world. And that's where humanities and liberal arts kind of came into the fold. And those things are, you know, the cost of college relative to the value of being a good uh, student of the humanities or liberal arts is just hard to justify these days for most families. So I think you're right in that college has kind of gotten off course in terms of, yeah, um, it used to be a place where you became more worldly after four years. Now it's sort of most supposed to prepare you for some kind of career. And then that's just a a sad loss for that worldliness that once it once represented.
1: Yeah, and, and that reminds me of the adjacent possible, right? It if you go forward. College should open up, as you learn, open up new and new ideas and possibilities to the learner over time. And years ago, that might have been the only method in which you would be exposed to new ideas to enter into those new adjacents. But now you just go online and Ask ChatGPT to open up the door for you, and it does.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Right. It's funny though. Yep. Just real quick, uh, you know, I've, I, you have kids that are college age. Mine, mine's I have an eighteen year old. Um, and when I spoke to the college advisor about what I thought would be best for Jake, the college advisor in his high school, I said, you know, wherever wherever his heart takes him, so long as he's passionate about it, I, I don't, I'm willing to spend the money on whatever that path is, as long as it means something to him. Well, of course, you know, kids will always do the opposite of what you've you've like laid out for them. So he basically said, I want to become an engineer. I want to get a good job when I'm done. And I was like, kid, I'm like inviting you to study anything, art history, anything. And he's picking engineering, which is like one of the most employable fields there is. So this is how kids get you every time.
1: Right. Well, (laughs) hey, at least he's hitting the ball down the middle of the fairway, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Yeah. Uh, so as we move to the uh, kind of deep dig into the good life, my question, uh, one, one of the things, the statements that they make uh, in the book um, after just all of this data about how humans interact with one another is that science is finally catching up to ancient wisdom that has been around for millennia. That's a pretty big statement because I think ultimately humans, we are really good at doing the opposite of what's actually good for us. And so we spend all of this time searching, looking, digging for this kind of sense of, of belonging and fulfillment when it's really kind of been in front of us, uh, for quite a long time, uh, maybe forever, maybe Uh, forever, maybe forever.
2: Well, I'm going to bring on a friend of mine from the neighborhood in uh, Brooklyn, where I work. Uh, This is the Reverend John Mertz. John is an Episcopal minister and serves as the pastor of the Episcopal Church of the Ascension in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. He has previously served as chaplain at New York University and other Manhattan congregations. One of the most interesting things about John (coughs) and the way I met him is uh, Reverend Mertz is a co-found- co-founder of the North Brooklyn Angels, a local nonprofit organization that I happen to volunteer with, dedicated to addressing pres- pressing issues such as hunger, poverty, homelessness, and inequity. Father um, John, would you join us here at uh, the podcast? And so he appears <laughs> out of the mist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us, John. Thanks for sharing your point of view. I, I, I We chatted earlier in the week, and um, Mark and I talk about the topic of the podcast at the beginning of the week. And I'm so I love this topic that he brought to us. Um, when we, you and I were talking, we were talking about how you have a background, both as somebody who studied divinity and secondly, as somebody who's an active community organizer. Um, when Which is, if you take away the sort of politics of the word, it's about help getting people to work with one another and, and get things done together. Um Mark, why don't you lead us off? I just want, you know, I know that your questions are super profound and I know that uh, John's got a mind for the profound.
1: Yeah. So, uh as I just said, the Harvard study starts in 1938. They've done all this research they've used scientific methods. They've studied in the study, they would put the participants in fMRI scanners and they would take their blood on a regular basis. And they're using all of the science that they could possibly muster. And it evolved over time. So they got better and better at collecting the, the data and analyzing and trying to understand what it, what it means. But then for the, the ending hypothesis to be that it's been here all the time. Is kind of shocking in and of itself so i'd love to hear your your thoughts about all of that um, it's probably makes you chuckle a little bit uh given what you do uh, all these crazy people searching for things that are right in front of them
0: yeah well thank you for first of all for having me on um and this is as, as you mentioned it's an enormous topic um and it's a topic that's uh, you know if you go back or speaking earlier you, i was listening to you talk about liberal arts education and this is really the question that dominate that dominates early philosophy what is the good life what is the life worth worth living and so this has been a perennial question and and um so uh, it is interesting in, in in i've i've done some reading this week on the study and on the findings of the study, and um, it, it, is, it is, in fact, their findings are one of those things, as you've mentioned, that it sits right in front of our face, and we're searching for it all the time. And what people are searching for is um, how to make life meaningful and to feel connected to themselves and to feel connected to those around them and so as somebody who works in a community and 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 pastors at a church most of the time you you encounter people or when when people see me say if i'm wearing the conventional costume of a clergy person uh they'll talk with you when they're feeling particularly disconnected you know they'll think you have some special knowledge to give them or they want to share with you how they feel disconnected and um you know, it's, it, I think it's generally a very common experience for anybody um, in life to feel disconnected periodically, um, especially when you're young, uh, you feel disconnected or out of the stream or your own uniqueness. You're, you're puzzling that over. How do I fit in? How do I not fit in? Um, but I think we're at a particular point right now because of of what's happened over the last few years where where so much has changed. And the ways that people connect have changed so much that more and more people are emerging that feel profoundly disconnected from their communities, from their work relationships, or in their work relationships, even, even, I would even say, to the way they do work. It's not just the the work relationships they have among the people they work, but even the very way in which they've always done their work has changed. Mm -hmm. Um with no Someone training for, what's that with no training for it you know we were it was all kind of right. like okay now we'll change everything <laughs> right that's
2: that's kind of what i get stuck on with this you know it's so easy for the three of us if you just look at us to to call us sort of crabby middle-aged men uh or middle-aged people even um but i am watching and we had a quick back and forth this week um you know I keep wondering when tools that are put in front of us that make us feel disconnected, um, why do we? Why are we so drawn to these tools? And so the two that come to mind that, again, make us look like we're a little out of touch is people play video games endlessly and they're essentially disconnected from, A, the, the things they're doing in that video game and B, other people. And secondly, there's this rise of the influencer, these people who wanna live a life on camera so that they can project a certain life to people. but you know, we keep hearing that people who live that life feel lots of pressure to keep living that life. And it has this negative effect on the people who watch that life. They think they're supposed to live lives like that. Why, why isn't our own enlightened self-interest to live satisfying lives that are connected? Um, why are we making decisions that take us farther and farther away from that? Hmm.
0: That's a good question. I mean, I think that, that, um, well, I, let me, let me attack it the other way for a second. One of the things, uh, you've, you've, you've kind of named the symptom or, or how it's playing out, and I'll, I'll go to the cure, at least as I've experienced it. And we're encountering more and more people, let's say, for instance, at the North Brooklyn Angels, um, which every day of the week, there's an opportunity to cook in your community, to distribute food in your community, and people who are educated, cosmopolitan, sophisticated, and of course, all different walks of life, and coming down and getting involved and and being absolutely astounded, almost, at how gratifying it is. It, it's almost as if they've stumbled upon some kind of a, um, I think they, they almost feel uh, like they're, they're stealing something. Like, how could this be so connecting? To come into a room with seventeen, sixteen other people, and prepare food, and then put it in boxes and bring it out to trucks and distribute it into the community, and I haven't, I haven't really done anything that's particularly extraordinary, that um, calls all of this training I might have gotten in college or in my work field, um, but I think it's we we don't really recognize I think often what makes us tick as human beings. You know, Aristotle said, man is by nature a social animal. And he was talking in particular about political when he said social, but we need to be together. People need to be around other people. We need to be, to, to be mirrored and reflected. When we do positive things, we need to feel the closeness. You you know, in your opening, you, you said, uh, we're, we're from, You know, you met me in the neighborhood, and I always reflect on that word with people because it comes from the word to be nigh, which means to be close to. So it, it has to do with being close to people and rubbing elbows with people and just experiencing other people. And I think the online world is it's very seductive because there's so much time saving and convenience in it. But real relationships are not very convenient, Um, you know, especially, you know, lasting relationships go through tremendous trials and pains and ruptures. Um, Like if we could build an online relationship, uh, it just couldn't be, you know, tremendously satisfying. I mean, if that was it, like how good are the friendships that that are just formed on Zoom? Um, you know, and how good are the arguments and discussions and debates that just happen online? They're 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 evacuated of all of the nuance that happens when people are together. And and so I think um you know people connecting to service in their community, connecting to other people, you know, simply sitting out on the stoop, you know gathering to be with other people in completely meaningless ways. Uh, Yeah. You know, bowling, you know, not not to, not to, you know, disparage bowling, but... um, Right. Ways
2: that just connect us and crisscross us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's really interesting because the book and the science behind it substantiates what it is that you're saying is that there's neurochemicals that are released when you're in close proximity to another person. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was one case where there was a a person with PTSD and they were putting him in the um, fMRI scanner and the MRI machine, and he got very agitated and nervous and his wife touched his hand. Mm -hmm. And as soon as she did that, his brain just completely switched off in terms of all the anxiety dissipated. They could see uh, what was happening there. And so they start to to research that, that further and even just being next to someone what they also talk about. And so you can never, of course, have that experience on zoom or online, um, having that close proximity to another human, it just doesn't work. But the other thing was, uh, what they, they discuss is that they show a picture, uh, taken by a young Stanley uh, Stanley Kubrick of of all people in 1940s of a New York train car and every single person's head is down. And you are thinking like was this staged and this is like everyone's looking at their iPhone uh but no so then you, they took a new one and it's everyone's exactly the same thing all looking down. So it's not necessarily the invention of technology and smartphones they just happen to be looking at their newspaper and mm-hmm. everyone else is looking uh at their uh, at their smartphone most likely uh in the most recent one and so the 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 thought there is that we are just really bad at doing what's good for us and our brains mm-hmm. are just hardwired to take in as much information as possible they went a little bit further and and said well how happy is a person if they actually talk to their seatmate on a train or on a plane versus putting their nose down in it's just an exponential uh increase in gratification when you have the conversation with the human versus sticking your nose in the the book the magazine the tablet the computer whatever it is Uh, it's just it's almost in our nature to do the opposite of what's good for us
0: Absolutely. And I, and I think that you have, you know, the the one of the things that does happen, I think that the difference from reading the newspaper, though, to the social media is that we because of algorithms and other things, we tend to get in feedback loops of the same type of information, whereas if everybody in the car is reading the same newspaper and you're reading the whole newspaper. You're going to be subject to reading articles you're not pleased with, or you don't particularly like, and having to encounter those kinds of things. It reminds me of something to mention. Somebody that was already mentioned in the podcast, if I can, because I was listening to you guys at the outset, and I happen to know this person as well. Um, Lewis mentioned Norman Brodsky, and one of the things that Norm always said and I listened to is when you go into a room, or if you go to an event. Um, a community event, Um, always talk to new people. Always seek out people you haven't spoken to. Don't gravitate towards the same people, Um, which would be the the kind of social media (laughs) style, is I'll do the same thing because I know I'll get gratified there. Mm -hmm. But not only is it a smart kind of business practice, but it's a good emotional practice to be surprised. By other people and then you have the opportunity to meet new people to um to grow to be surprised to be changed and to put yourself into new situations which is kind of what you know you were talking about earlier co- being a cosmopolitan person is just to be comfortable in a larger world um theoretically speaking so
2: uh, i'd like to challenge both of you um Mark was saying earlier that uh, one of the things that they uh, discovered in the study was the release of certain neurochemicals. So let's, you know, none of us are neuroscientists, but let's just say there's some identifiable way inside your brain that says, Hey, I like this. Let's do more of this. Mm-hmm. Um, now let's say Mark, who, who is an entrepreneur, uh, is pitching a new business idea, it's a set of, you know, AR, VR goggles that go around your head and your ears, and he can, introduce you to images and things that would make that chemical get released. So you really wouldn't have to go down to the stoop anymore because he can, he can essentially get that chemical out of you in another way. And let's say he's pitching to you, John, and it wants you to be the spokesperson for this because you believe in connection. He's told you the connection gets reduced to a chemical experience. So he says, I can make that same, I can make you feel that same connection. We're going to make a billion dollars. If we do this, I want to put a face on this product and I think it's yours, this connection guy. How would you guys set, like, work that out?
0: Well, from an ethical standpoint, I couldn't be involved. (laughs) And and the reason I wouldn't be involved is because, um, you know, in reading a little bit on the study, um, the author was saying that actually it's a little bit misnomer talking about happiness. He said the question is more one of well-being. Um, and that's part of kind of what the Harvard study um, focuses on, is how you can have well-being in your mental and physical life, in your work life, in your relationships. And so it's, it, it's, it's not a success model, I think, in terms of, of optimizing happiness. It's it's that if you're connected in, in, in relationships in some kind of deep, integral way, you'll have the resourcefulness to navigate the full complexity of life. So to me, I wouldn't be interested in a VR system like that because it's going to create for you the release of dopamine and these various things. But... But you have to have both sides of it. I mean, life is only joyful because it's incredibly, as Roberto Benigni said in, uh, I think, Down by Law, it is a sad and beautiful world. You know, it is, it, it's it's all of these things. And so, ha, you know, uh, well-being has to do with also connected to your nature and the way you are when you get the phone call that your mother or father has stage four cancer or you do, or your spouse does, or your child does. I mean, you know, it would be inappropriate to run and put those VR goggles on in that moment, but it would be totally appropriate to go and sit with that person or with another family member and cry and hold each other which would in its own way release those connective, I'm sure it would release something that would be cathartic, some internal chemical. So that's my answer to that.
1: Yeah, and and I, I would just add to that. It's not just about you. It's about your impact of everyone else around you. And if you're, let's just say we start up, you know, ABC, Dopamine norepinephrine company, <laughs> uh, which by the way, th- there was a study that did this in rats and they implanted an electrode in their brain. And every time they hit a button, it would give them a hit of all the chemicals. And what ended up happening is the rat didn't eat. It didn't drink. It didn't have sex. It didn't do anything. And it just kept hitting the button until it died. That's all that <laughs> happened. Um,
2: not a bad way to go.
1: <laughs> just hitting a button i mean uh, but so like if, if you had this it would be the company as the intermediary to all human happiness there would be no uh interpersonal impact uh there'd be no caring <laughs> there would really be no meaning uh ultimately i don't think it would just be it would be a good way to make money. And maybe that's exactly what's happening now is <laughs> that we have right, intermediary to you know, neurochemicals that they're just uh, making us hit the button.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at some level, I don't, you know, I so I, I work at Ryder University with, you know, 20-somethings. Mm-hmm. I have my own kid, but just objectively, I'm around about 20 or 25, 20-somethings every semester. And, you know, the topic we teach is entrepreneurship. Mark has come in to teach to the class. And the big top, the the um, fifty thousand foot topic is really, are you prepared to expose yourself to risk, which is sort of, you know, intertwined with entrepreneurship. And from a personal level, it's almost always the case that they struggle with being uh, risk oriented because they say the social media world presents everyone's lives as being so wonderful. I can't mm-hmm. contemplate being a failure or a loser, and so to that point, Mark, why are people um, surrounding themselves with what called content, but really messages um, that seem to make them feel bad about themselves in the end, or kind of lock themselves in. I have, I, I am a volunteer at at Father, at Father John's uh, North Brooklyn Angels. So when I do go there, I, I work in a kitchen with people, and your hands get dirty, and then we put it all in a truck, we hand it off to people. It's like by far the best part of my week, by far, like no question. It's also tiring, you know, you're a little beat up afterwards, because you've been up and down the stairs carrying food. But why? Yeah, why? Why are we so easily? I mean, is convenience the only answer about why we would so easily just fire up Instagram rather than go out and, and help feed people who need who are nothing but smiles when you feed them? You know, why it's... is that such a hard choice?
1: well, we have a never-ending propensity to do the opposite of what's good for us. Uh, <laughs> I think that's ultimately the answer, but you have these, they're addictive in nature. It's releasing all the appropriate uh, neurochemicals that your, your brain loves, and then you feel bad afterwards. Uh, and it, it the other thing I was thinking about when you were saying that is the opposite of happiness or uh, to your point, John, well-being is, Unhappiness, right, and I really do think that expectations that are unmet is the source of all unhappiness if you have you ever been to Jamaica yeah I've- it's uh in my experience very happy people so i was I was at the resort guy's super happy he's just having the best time ever and he he was working at the resort and I was like oh so where where do you live do you live close by he's like i'll show you so he takes me over to the the wall of the the resort we stand on a chair and he points to a small 8 by 8 cinder block hut kind of thing uh dirt floor he's like that's where I, my house i'm like oh okay um he's like it's everything i need nothing i don't it's perfect expectations of were perfectly met for him, uh, where there is no gap between what he expected for himself and what he was currently experiencing. He felt like he had everything he needed. He was the richest man in the world. He was the richest man in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's where you well, get all the unhappiness from copious amounts of this curated lives that, that young people and everyone really are seeing.
2: John, uh, post-COVID, uh, so many things have changed. I mean, you could you could just spend a lifetime talking about these things. But uh, what have you seen in terms of connectivity between people uh, self-fulfilling or fulfilling relationships um, over the last two, three years?
0: You mean post-COVID? What,
2: what? Well, I know COVID obviously took us all physically apart from one another. Uh, mm-hmm. But as we've tried to get back to, I don't know, quote-unquote normal, um, have you seen people, is it coming back better than it was before? Is it harder than it was before? Is it different than it was before?
0: Well, in, in, in my work, I, I encounter a lot of people who want to have discussions and it, it sounds like for many people, it feels like they, they stepped off a moving train and they can't get back on and they feel that other, other people have gotten back on and they can't understand. Is it physical? Is it emotional? Maybe they had COVID and they're wondering if they have long COVID. Um, so I encounter a lot of people who want to have pastoral discussions about that, about what, you know, what can I do? Or, or is this depression trying to figure out? And, you know, I have no easy answers for that at all. I'm not just generally not an easy answer person to begin with, but, um, you know, try to help people complex. I try to help people navigate the complexity of what they're seeing in the society around them, what they're feeling in their bodies, what might've changed in their work and begin to tease out all of these things and have them have an appreciation that things really have changed a lot. Um, and then, and then, you know, we'll often talk to people about small connections that people can make. I have seen, uh, you know, not to just keep going back to this, but we've seen a lot of younger people just connecting to service in their community. And and it was one of the curious things that happened with our organization during the pandemic. A lot of people, well, we saw this everywhere, but people made drastic career changes because all of a sudden they said, you know what I've been doing? It just doesn't feed me. And, and so we saw a number of people come and volunteer and decide they wanted to go into social work or they wanted to go into a nonprofit. They might've been working for, you know, Spotify or somebody. And they said, I want to try to change into another field. Um, so, you know, those are just the basic, um, elements. I, I wonder, I just, I want to touch back on something you said before I was thinking about, um, two different things. One is that, um, our expectations and what we look for are obviously shaped by the larger cultural context. So if you're um, you know, if you're in um you know, the fourteenth century if you're like a fourteenth century Ashkenazic Jewish community in, in France and Germany, um your life is going to be connected by a whole Network of Jewish cultural kinship relations and expectations. And it's going to be very specific to that cultural place and time. And you're going to feel you belong to an integral world. You know, you're needed in that world. And, and you see this in all kinds of communities, uh, like that. And I think what one of the things that's happening is people are finding identity markers in online communities or belonging that don't have any substance or depth they don't have any so you you know you become part of an ideological political movement um or and you have this on all elements of the political spectrum you know all sides of the political spectrum where you you bond over these particular issues in these forums but there's no there, there's no kind of integrated connection to um just to being together which you would have in any kind of stable ritual identity community i don't know if that makes any sense but kind of from a ritual and and community anthropology point of view like that's um you know the the togetherness thing a lot a lot is is um transmitted uh, to people when they come together around those, around these kinds of cultural markers, that we we seem to be losing a lot of that. Um,
2: well, so. you know, Mark Mark's point at the outset was uh, I don't think he meant it this way, but it's almost like an aha or a gotcha. Like um, we've done all this study for almost a hundred years, and guess what? It's really what we always thought it was. Um, but uh, you know, I'm just going to put out there. Uh, I, I'm still open to that, it, it can change. Uh, I, I, the ancient ideas of connectivity, community, togetherness are still huge. I love all that stuff, but who's to say that that person who's connecting to some online community, um, even if it's going into some weird, wacky ideological spaces, you said it's, it's. you said, I don't know what the word you used, John, was it empty or it's false or something, but you definitely didn't say anything good about it. Um, and so are you sure? Are you sure that it's not good are you, are you sure it's not are you sure there's not a twenty first century way of connecting with other people that's more digital but somehow equally or even more satisfying
0: hmm. yeah i mean i'm not sure um i i have my in, in, intuition about it um and um you know i think i think that's one of the one of the symptoms of i mean i guess this would happen all the time but we tend to you know we tend to throw out these i our judgments in this in the same kind of declarative way um you know i had a friend when when i was in seminary in two, 2004 and we started or 2002 and we started with discussion boards and these early uh you know the early form and he was a transfer student from oxford and he's and we were all doing work on these boards and he said uh, i don't quite understand you Americans and this online thing he said You and your assertion boards, he called them assertion boards. Um, uh, It wasn't really a discussion board. Uh, But I can't say that people, that that these aren't um, fulfilling. They don't serve a particular function. There's lots of ways in which they're very helpful. I just think they can't replace genuine, unpredictable community where people have to rub elbows and encounter each other on a daily basis, get into uncomfortable spaces, navigate them, build sustaining long, longer term relationships, all of the nonverbal cues that happen physically. I just, I don't, I, you know, I go back to Aristotle. We're, we're meant to be social. We're meant to be near each other. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know it's yeah. it's even, even one last thing like even in a in a monastery which is like people imagine that a monastery is an isolating hermetic place of aloneness it's actually intense community even if it's in silence you're around people all the time you can't get away from them uh there's regular hours it's incredibly intense um so I think anytime we, we actually get into isolating situations, that's when most people get into trouble, you know, in terms of well-being, when they get, when they get really isolated away from other people, not everybody, but in general, you know?
1: Yeah. And Lewis, I, I would just say that I think that there's a distinct difference between communicating talking versus connecting. And to to your point, John, when you have to live with these people, right? There's keyboard courage. People are all really uh, courageous uh, when they're sitting at their keyboards uh, by themselves in their basement somewhere. Uh, But at the same time, they probably wouldn't say those things in person. And even if they would, they would do it in a, a much different way and they'd be more open And all the research does suggest that it is impossible to achieve that total uh, view of connection when you're not physically present, Uh, just based on brain scans and physical touch and the the general proximity. It isn't possible. It's probably pretty good for a lot of people, um, but it's not complete. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, we all have work to do.
1: <laughs> now now I kinda want to burn my phone and like just, you know. This is like the third well, time, Lewis, that I've wanna smash my phone after our conversations.
2: I know, uh, because we keep going down these same rabbit holes. Yeah, so like, and the same and the same irony. So one time, John, yeah. was he was talking about how he wants to move to, you know, get off the grid. And he says, I'm going to use Zillow to find a cabin off the grid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. Meanwhile, my daughter, my daughter's eight years old and she's, I was with somebody last night. We were talking about this very thing and they said, you know, maybe our children will work it out. They'll want to get rid of all this stuff. And I said, my daughter's eight years old. And literally yesterday she wrote a manifesto like the Unabomber. For why she should have a Chromebook. I mean, it was it was like three pages, all right. of the wow. reasons laid out. Why <laughs> she, As long as guess, she
2: wrote it and she didn't, she didn't outsource it to ChatGPT.
0: That's right. That's right. It looked like her writing. <laughs> like, I'm not sure. She might have said, prompted that it sounds like a child.
1: Yeah. Well, that's and, then, very
2: true. and we have to appreciate the irony. We're talking about human connection while we all basically zoom into a podcast environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, John, thank you so much for joining us for a few minutes today and sharing your uh, perspective and wisdom. Also, just because we we are, we crisscross in the neighborhood. Thank you for what you do for Greenpoint to make it feel a little bit more connected. Yeah. Well, thank
0: you for being a connector in it. So, thank you. Thanks,
1: John. Thank you. All right. Ciao. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Wow, that
2: was heavy.
1: Yeah, it's a big conversation, right? I mean, it's yeah. not, and everyone is in their own way uh, talking about this. I had dinner uh, with some family yesterday, and uh, my sister happens to have a completely online business. She's sort of an influencer in her own right. Uh, she makes pretty good money all online, and she just says, "I hate it. I want to quit." Mm. I mean, part of her
2: business is her own personal image.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: Yeah, that's that's a that's a. I don't know why that's so interesting to so many people, so attractive.
1: She feels alone, isolated by herself. It's just her talking to a black box.
2: Yeah. Hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I continue to be very lucky people because really our work is all about connecting with other people and making things happen between people. So. We get a lot, you know, that comment you made about the person you met in the resort in Jamaica. And I said, that's the richest man in the world. Uh, You know, I often find myself feeling like the richest man in the world, too. And it has a lot to do with the people around me.
1: Totally, totally. When I've been going to, we had our EOS conference a couple weeks ago. I was at a Vistage executive summit this past week. And everyone is so happy to be with one another it there's just such a great energy when you put a bunch of well when you especially put a bunch of entre- entrepreneurs in one place they tend to be yeah. a little uh more extroverted a little bit higher on they're, the like the they're like the dopamine button rat they're like give me more give me more give me more yeah and yeah, then they're yeah. like totally exhausted yeah and most yeah. of them get it from being with other people like it's really interesting yeah. to see entrepreneurial communities they really gain a ton of energy from being with one another they bounce ideas off each other and it's very exhilarating um, to just be observing and talking with one another and see what happens
2: yeah well uh, on that note let's go meet with other people and get share yeah. some ideas i have places to be you have places to be people to see um thanks for taking some time out today mark
1: yeah thanks lewis it's always a pleasure Okay. Thumbs up. See Thanks for listening to another episode of What I See, where we explore the stories of the visionaries shaping our world. We hope you found insights and inspiration from our guests. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and continue to be a part of the conversation. See you next time on What I See.